When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You have betrayed the express command of your king. Through your arrogance and stupidity, you have opened these peaceful realms and innocent lives to the horror and desolation of war! Whether he's playing the iconic Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lambs, or the buttoned-up Mr. Stevens in Remains of the Day, or, as we heard there, Odin amidst the faux Shakespearean bombast of Marvel's Thor, Anthony Hopkins is always pretty great, pretty reliable. This week, we've got our top five Hopkins performances in honor of his latest acclaimed role as an aging man battling dementia in The Father, which goes into limited release this weekend. Odin made your top five, didn't it, Josh? No spoilers. It's ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. With all due respect to Sir Anthony Hopkins, Josh, a lot of my attention this week has been devoted not to his many great performances, but instead to Film Spotting Madness, best of the 1980s. Well, we all have our priorities, Adam. That's right. Hopkins does appear in one film, competing in Film Spotting Madness. That's David Lynch's The Elephant Man. And for anyone out there who might be new to madness, maybe wondering why we even call it Film Spotting Madness. Well, this 64 film, bracket-style tournament, currently is pitting The Elephant Man against This Is Spinal Tap. You have to make a choice. Only one is going to continue to exist. Which one do you like more? That's a good example of, of really the nonsense that we're up to with this whole endeavor. <laughs> yeah, total, total absurdity. And we will get to that absurdity later in the show. Our podcast listeners, anyway, will get to partake in the nonsense. We'll save our radio listeners from that to hear the whole version of this show and all the round one shenanigans. You can find the podcast edition of this show at filmspotting.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, let's get to Hopkins. We'll spend a few minutes on his work in the new The Father later in the show, but right now we're going to get into our top five. Hopkins has had somewhat of an unusual career. There is before The Silence of the Lambs and then after The Silence of the Lambs. When you consider that he was 53 when he did play Hannibal Lecter, that was his first Oscar nomination, his first win. And before that, he was working steadily, but relatively obscurely. His first film role was way back in 1967. That was The White Bus, directed by Lindsay Anderson, a UK director, also known for If and This Sporting Life. And then The Lion in Winter, that came one year later, 1968. That one, Adam, a blind spot for both of us until recently. 
Yeah, and a fun watch, a little more fun for me, which our family members, our patrons know we did discuss that as a bonus episode that we just made available in the past week. If you jump ahead to 1980, then that's where you get The Elephant Man and then, of course, The Silence of the Lambs in 91. That's where things turned. So after Silence, in addition to just becoming this movie star, he got four more Oscar nominations, Best Acting nominations for Remains of the Day in 94, Nixon in 95, and Amistad in 97, and then a supporting nomination in 2020 for The Two Popes. Looking ahead, probably likely he'll be a nominee once more for The Father. Yeah, and a good chance that at least a few of those titles that were just mentioned and were Oscar-nominated will come up on our list. Let's dive in. Tell me how you approached this list, and what's your number five? So thinking about his career in its entirety, and especially breaking it down in those two halves, maybe the greatest testament to Hopkins' talent is that he wasn't stymied by Lecter. You know, so many actors get a role like that, an iconic part, and it comes to define them for the rest of their career. They just can't shake it. And I think Hopkins, we've seen, has enough range, enough ability, got enough opportunity, also, we should note, to do really relevant work afterwards. So my list is heavily post-Lecter, I think because of that, despite doing some homework, catching up on an older title or two, that's where my list ended up going. It's interesting, Adam, even you know, before I sat down to do all this, if you had just asked me without looking at his filmography at all, I would have told you that the Merchant Ivory stuff particularly Remains of the Day and Howard's End came before Silence. You know, I I, hmm. I had in my mind that he had this reputation and then took Lecter and it's actually the reverse. So I just think it's really impressive that after Lecter, he still had this rich of a career. Yeah. And you make an interesting point, too, when you consider that it's not as if he decided then to shy away from Lecter. He leaned into it. I mean, he yeah, made Hannibal, yeah. the sequel. He made Red Dragon, the remake of Manhunter. He played Lecter two more times. Yeah, you wonder if um, he would have done that if he hadn't had that success with something like Remains of the Day and, and Nixon and those nominations, mm-hmm. which brings us to my number five, actually, Nixon. It is a title that I caught up with for this list. Some homework for me. I remember, you know, in 95, when this Oliver Stone film came out, got a fairly mixed reaction. Uh, At least that's what I remember. Though one big admirer at the time was Roger Ebert. He wrote this about Hopkins. In the title role, Anthony Hopkins looks and sounds only generally like the 37th president. This is not an impersonation. Hopkins gives us a deep, resonant performance that creates a man instead of imitating an image. And Ebert's right. That's true. The makeup work here, it almost seems less interested in evoking Nixon than in hiding Hopkins, who we came to know, the face we came to know as Anthony Hopkins slash Hannibal Lecter by that time. Um, And think about it. It's interesting. This is four years after The Silence of the Lambs. In that time, Adam, this speaks to how much work he did. He appeared in 11 films in those four years. So here we are with Nixon. Um, and to me, you know, I only know Nixon through archival footage, newsreel stuff. I didn't live through it, right? It does seem, based on what I know from that, that Hopkins captures Nixon's cadences in a way. But what I like about the performance is that he also goes for this Shakespearean eloquence here and there. He veers mm-hmm. away from capturing those cadences. And I think that's especially true in this one moment 
where he's considering the bodies of Vietnam soldiers that lay in the wake of his presidency. Here he speaks to this portrait of Abraham Lincoln, another wartime president. How many did you have? Hundreds of thousands? Where will we be without death? Who's helping us? Is it God or is it death? The tone here, it's very much in keeping with the gloomy castle air that Stone brings to the movie. Um, There's a lot of Macbeth in Nixon. I don't know that I'm probably a little mixed myself to positive on the movie overall. I think there's some simplistic biopic pop psychology that's at play here that limits the movie. But Hopkins, definitely he's the reason this works as well as it does. And so it's my number five performance. It's a good pick. And I like that you have right out of the gate a made up Hopkins performance. And what I mean by that is more of an outside in performance, one where he's putting on a voice, one where he is even if not completely trying to mimic Nixon is embodying some of his mannerisms and has a certain style of hair and dress and movement. I'm looking at my list, Josh, and I've got five performances that are Hopkins performances. They're Hopkins as himself for Mm. the most part. And that scene is a really good one too, because Oliver Stone shoots it in a way that is so dark and expressionistic, you know, and it has that canted angle to it that just makes it all so ominous. And I love that the, camera is tilted and then when he cuts to Hopkins looking up at that portrait his head's tilted almost like it's a match cut and the lighting everything about that sequence you pulled is just so foreboding it's really good filmmaking Hopkins of course is really good in it yeah the Robert Richardson cinematography also a highlight of Nixon for sure so when I was thinking about Anthony Hopkins and approaching this list I did notice that some themes emerged or one dominant theme emerged. And I really liked something I saw online that Ben Kingsley said about Hopkins. He was being interviewed by Larry King. He was asked about working with Tony Hopkins. And then he was also asked just who's the best actor he's ever had the opportunity to act with. And he said, even though he's only been in one movie with Hopkins, and I think for one scene, a film called, collide that I'd never even heard of Josh much less seen he actually said Tony Hopkins was the best actor he'd worked with and he described him this way he said it was like sitting next to a volcano and (laughs) it's easy to take that as initially a comment on his ability Hopkins uncanny ability to erupt on screen he can get very big and he can get very loud but when I think about a volcano Most of the time, a volcano is just sitting there, right? A volcano doesn't spend its time erupting. It's usually still. It's passive. And I think what's so dynamic about Hopkins is this clash you often see between his gentility, between his sophistication, his kind of polish, his stillness, his restraint, and the monster inside. And the monster might be an exaggeration for the most part, when we think about his characters. But there is a certain frailty there. There's something a little darker. There's something troubling that it seems like 
his characters are often trying to keep at bay. I actually think of him, this goes back to the volcano analogy, I actually think of him as quite a primal performer in that way, in that there is this struggle that's always present, I think, between civility and incivility, which is why this 1997 film, I think, is a perfect choice for my list and a great way to kick it off. It's his role as Charles Morse in the David Mamet scripted The Edge. And this is a movie where they even say it in the trailer, civilization disappears. And what are these two men going to do? Two men who are rivals. Hopkins is ostensibly one of the smartest men in the world and I think is pretty wealthy. And he's married to Elle McPherson. And they're out in the wilderness. And Alec Baldwin plays a photographer who gets stranded with Hopkins, who has also almost certainly been sleeping with Charles's wife, which Charles is aware of. So they're battling each other, but they're also mainly battling nature and specifically a, a bear, bear. <laughs> a bear that is after them, a very smart bear. We'll hear oh, yeah. more about it in a second, but top, you, top five movie bear, Adam, for there sure. There you go. For sure. You've got this mostly introverted man of learning, man of books, knows everything you could possibly know about the world intellectually, but really knows nothing about himself and kind of what he's capable of if he was put to the test, if he stripped away all of his money and his books and that academic knowledge and actually had to apply it in order to survive. And probably the most famous scene in the movie, and the one I picked, is one where this bear has been relentlessly stalking them and Hopkins resolutely decides they're not going to take it anymore. He can handle this bear. They're going to do it. <laughs> they're going to kill it. And you have the virile younger man, the one who is cuckolding him with his supermodel-esque wife, Baldwin, who is supposedly the man of action, who kind of is turned into a sniveling baby while Hopkins rages in defiance of nature. What are we going to use to bait him, Charles? We lure him. What? We lure him. You know... Maasai boys in Africa, 11 years old. They kill lions with spears. How do we lure him? 11-year-old boys kill a lion. Did you know that Indian boys used to run up to the bear and slap him? Count coup on him as a test of manhood? No, no, no Charles. How are we going to lure him? Blood. Blood! One of my favorite moments in that exchange, probably unscripted, I don't know for sure, is when Hopkins says the word lure at least twice, and then Baldwin actually kind of mocks him for it. Yeah, he says, yeah. how are we going to lure him, you know, in that sort of Welsh intonation and the gravitas of it. But that's a scene where you get it just building and building until, yes, those golden Welsh pipes do erupt. The volcano comes to life there in that scene. And that's one of the real pleasures of watching Anthony Hopkins on screen. Such a fun movie. I mean, just so great to have Baldwin and Hopkins going back and forth yeah. at each other. And if this is, you know, if this is sort of Jaws in the woods, then Hopkins is giving us his quint, right? His his Robert Shaw with his well said. Charles. It's it's I yeah, I really like the edge. It's an honorable mention for me. All right, at number four, I have a movie that, well, I had to have a choice. And maybe you could put The Edge in this category, though I don't think so. I think it's a little more layered than this. But I, I had to have a choice that celebrated his over-the-top potential. And fittingly, then, 
I'm going to go here with a movie where he co-starred with Gary Oldman, who also, as we know, has that potential, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And this is where Hopkins plays the Dutch vampire hunter Van Helsing. So you enjoyed The Lion in Winter as a hoot. Adam. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's what we get here, especially (laughs) with Hopkins. Just listen to this scene where he leads some men to the grave of Lucy, which they find empty. Where is she? What are you doing with her? She lives beyond the grace of God, a wanderer in the outer darkness. She's vampire, Nosferatu. These creatures do not die like the bee after the first sting, but instead grow strong and become immortal once infected by another Nosferatu. So yeah, let's talk about the accent. What What is it there? <laughs> so I mean, good. <laughs> you can tell it, it's maybe Welsh. I don't know, generally British, but mm. uh, there's some Dutch possibly in there too. Maybe yeah. Transylvanian. We're getting a little Transylvanian. <laughs> Romanian then? Uh, I yeah, don't know. I don't, it's just sublime. I, I do though, I think Hopkins actually is good here. Not just campy. And you do get a sense of this the difference in another scene. This is where he's in a pub with Winona Ryder, Keanu Reeves. They're discussing their prospects against Dracula. And here's where you can tell the differentiation between an actor who really knows what to do with this sort of material and those who maybe aren't quite so sure. How did Lucy die? Was she in great pain? Yeah, she was in great pain. Then we cut off her head and drove a stick to her heart and burned it, and then she found peace. Doctor! Please. Make no mistake, Hopkins is chewing scenery here. You've got the accent again. He chugs. I love the moment where he chugs his whole mug of beer in one gulp. But the key is he's comfortable doing this. He's not destabilized by the grandiose material, by the scenario, by the dialogue, by the costumes, by the accent. Ryder and Reeves, they just, they never find that sort of stability in this film. I know we're no longer allowed to say anything negative about Keanu Reeves, but right. maybe not his strongest performance no. in Dracula. And and I think it's it's crucial to see, you know, it's helpful to see how Hopkins is handling the material a little differently. Not every actor who goes over the top is entertainingly comfortably so. And I think Hopkins does have that talent. I think it's something he also shares with Oldman and maybe it's best on display in Bram Stoker's Dracula. The accent really is sublime. And I love the way you even get it here with the accent, even when it's not in his, let's say native tongue, you have Hopkins doing what he does so well, which is alter the dynamics of his line readings, right? Speeding up, rushing words together yeah. and then slowing certain words down. He he does that really better than anybody. Yeah. Oh, I, and I, I'll talk more in detail about Hopkins and line readings as we go on here. All right. My number four Anthony Hopkins performance comes from a movie that I watched as part of homework for this top five that paid off a movie that was not part of our eight from 84 series, but is from 1984 and a movie that also showed me where Josh Anthony Hopkins got his early cannibal training for The Silence of the Lambs in The Bounty. His lieutenant, William Bly, at one point is talking about how they're going to be on this treacherous journey to any kind of land and non-hostile territory in people. And they'll have to go through the Fiji Islands where he says cannibalism is almost perfected to a science. He wants to stay away from it. I don't know. Maybe... Maybe he took a detour, Josh, (laughs) and learned. But there's a similar conceit here and construct to the edge in the bounty. It's man versus nature, for sure. 
It's man versus other man. It's man versus himself. Nature, of course, is the open sea. It's also the hedonistic pleasure dome of Tahiti, where they're just meant to stop and pick up some breadfruit and then get on with their journey. And they end up spending like two or three months there frolicking with all of the topless women. There's the other man in this case, primarily Mel Gibson, who plays Fletcher Christian, his supposed friend and his second in command. But it's the man versus himself part that really intrigues me most about Hopkins, Lieutenant Bly. What's happening with his men and his mission and their environment, that all heightens the inner conflict, but the inner conflict is perhaps what led to the other conflicts in the first place. He doesn't have the title he thinks he deserves. He thinks he should be a captain. He doesn't come from money. He doesn't have well-connected friends. Everything England society at the time, especially 1787, is predicated on. And then perhaps because of all of those inferiorities, he tries too hard as a leader. He's prone to soapboxing and moralizing, and he's driven by his ambition. He's got to prove himself. He's going to sail the quickest route, not the best route for the men, the easiest route. He's going to circumnavigate the globe by going around Cape Horn, despite knowing how treacherous it is. And the inner conflicts really come through. And this dynamic I'm trying to set up with Hopkins in terms of that primal nature that he's always battling, they get to Tahiti, Josh, with the exposed women and the, let's say, sexual fraternization between them and his men and their really troubling, inappropriate ceremonies with the suggestive dancing. That's where Bly's leadership and his overriding sense of moral superiority is then thrown completely into crisis. So I'm going to play a clip where he's confronting Mel Gibson's character and Fletcher Christian has gone all in. He's got the woman he's in love with. He's gotten the native tattoos. He's living a life of pure carnal bliss and has no intentions of going back to jolly old. I think your brain has been overheated, sir, and your body overindulged in sexual excess. I have done no more than any natural man would do. No. You've done no more than any wild animal would do. It always makes me laugh, but whenever men lose their self-restraint, they always say they're natural. They are more natural than men who have nothing to restrain. Mr. Christian, you will report to the ship before sundown. Is that understood? No. No. What did you say? So there we get that natural man versus wild animal kind of dynamic and the really stinging line from Gibson there that they are more natural than men who have nothing to restrain. What is in one's nature? What's unnatural to do or feel and the compulsion for restraint? I mean, Gibson here is really accusing him of being so restrained as to not actually be a man. And I think, Josh, not to give too many spoilers, but Emma Thompson is going to needle an Anthony Hopkins character about his restraint and how he actually betrays his natural instincts in one of our picks coming up. But also in terms of line readings here, the way Hopkins says surprised and he he bottoms out when he says it, he really leans into that. And this is another one where the pressure builds and Mount Hopkins erupts smaller scale than the edge, but it's there. And if you really want to see an eruption in the bounty, it's there 
to be appreciated. Daniel Day-Lewis, also a primary character in this film. So you've got Daniel Day, Hopkins, and Mel Gibson all going toe-to-toe with each other. And there's one scene in particular where Hopkins Bly loses it on Daniel Day-Lewis in front of the entire crew. I'll include it on our top five page over at filmspotting.net if you want to watch. Yeah, and that's the one. I haven't seen this either, but uh, knowing this was going to be on your list, I did watch a couple of scenes. That's the one where you get the full volcano. And it brought to mind for me, I I don't mean this to diminish what Hopkins is doing at all, but but a George Costanza moment. You know how (laughs) George could just go from zero to 60? (laughs) Hopkins has that quality, but of course brings much more drama to it. And you definitely get it in that scene. Nice. Well, a six-decade career like that of Anthony Hopkins definitely deserves more picks. We'll get to our top three choices and succumb to Film Spotting Madness when we come back. Stay with us. drum slowly. The critics called him a brilliant new talent. After Mean Streets, they said he was a genius. For his performance in The Godfather Part Two, they gave him the Academy Award. Come on, man. Just get me out of here, all right? Now, Robert De Niro creates a terrifying portrait of life on the edge of madness. I don't know. Maybe this De Niro fellow sounds like someone we should watch. Mm. Maybe keep an eye on him. Welcome back. To film spotting, that's from the trailer for Taxi Driver. Next week here on the show, we'll return to our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series with another look at Scorsese's film. This is actually the first movie, Josh, that will be given a second Sacred Cow review. Slate's Dana Stevens and I talked about it for its 35th anniversary 10 years ago before you Join the show. So it'll be interesting to see how much more or less you appreciate it. Did Dana go for it? Do you remember? Was she full of praise? I remember almost nothing about that conversation okay. at this point, Josh. So <laughs> I will be watching the movie and considering it completely fresh. But I do feel pretty sure when I say that we both liked it. All right. Probably a safe guess. Also next week, the second film in our 40s noir marathon, 1942's This Gun for Hire with Veronica Lake and Robert Preston. Seemed like a good combination with Taxi Driver. And yes, that is Robert Preston from The Music Man and maybe more notably for our listeners, The Last Starfighter. And Veronica Lake, Josh, is someone who I was sure I had seen in at least one other movie on screen besides Sullivan Travels. But when I scanned her IMDb, alas, that does not seem to be the case. So this would be only my second Veronica Lake. Yeah, looking looking at her filmography, I think I'm there with you in that case. So good reason. Another reason yep. we should do this gun for hire. Next week, we'll also have Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 80s, Round 1 results. And we'll discuss and break down the round two matchups, but much more on madness in a bit. This week on our sister podcast, Josh, the next picture show, Uneasy Riders Part Two. 
Nomadland is the topic this week, a movie that's getting a lot of discussion online as it's becoming more available. They paired Nomadland with Albert Brooks' road trip comedy Lost in America. That was part one, where I understand Tasha and Scott, as they tend to do, got into it a little bit. Mm. Their next pairing is going to be Lee Isaac Chung's Minari, and they're going to match that with Claude Berry's 1986 film Jean de Florette about a land dispute between two French families. It's a French film from the 80s, so yes, it does star Gerard Depardieu. And Thank I you. don't believe, Adam, that Jean de Florette was even considered for the play-in tournament, right? For film spotting it madness? Was not. Okay. No, because it is a blind spot for me. The next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes are available every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. One way that you can support our show is to join the film spotting family over on Patreon for a mere five bucks a month. You get ad free episodes, early show downloads. You also get monthly bonus episodes. We did talk about Anthony Hopkins and mainly Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn in The Lion in Winter. Recently, that bonus episode is available now, and you get to partake in our monthly trivia spotting events. We did just conclude this past Saturday, Josh, trivia spotting seven. We thank all of our VIPs, our special guest captains who played, and that includes two Next Picture Show host Genevieve and Keith Phipps were there. Griffin Newman from Blank Check was back. We had Brian Tallarico from RogerEbert.com, a first-time captain. Dan McCoy from the Flophouse podcast, another first-timer. Another first-timer in Mariah Gates. And Keith Maitland, yes, the director of Golden Brick Nominee Tower, also participated. We had a great group. And Thomas Todd, our quiz master extraordinaire, added a new wrinkle a new lightning round that josh i know had you feeling a little uncomfortable oh but you laughed your way through it (laughs) dead or not dead yes a little awkward to on the spot lightning round as you said be forced to choose whether a film figure was still alive this is harder than you might think adam very hard as everything is under the pressure you and i both spectacularly (laughs) spectacularly flamed flamed out. out flamed out and I hope that the recording of this that I know we were doing has somehow been lost. Speaking of flaming out, I'm going to put the recording in the film spotting madness incinerator because I don't want anyone to hear it, even though I'm going to cop to it here. It is true. This is how foggy my brain is and why you don't want to be assigned to my team as a captain in trivia spotting. I got asked the question simply, Sean Connery, dead or alive? And what was it, Josh? Not that many weeks ago that we eulogized him here Uh, on the show. Last fall. Yes, last fall. Okay, so last fall. Okay, that's a little better, I guess. But I said he was alive. Maybe it was just wishful thinking. I just really wanted Sean Connery to be with us. You know what? You'd rather be on that side of the mistake than the side I was on. And here's where I sincerely apologize to (laughs) Bo Bridges and his family. Bo Bridges. And his family. That's right. (laughs) You killed Bo Bridges, who we just saw in a really memorable scene. A good performance. In One Night in Miami. Was it? He yeah. Was, he was in that? Okay. I'll take yes. your word for it. Yeah. It's that It's that scene with Jim Brown early in the film. Oh, okay. I think that's It's kind of unforgettable. That's probably why I forgot. You saw One Night in <laughs> Miami, actually, though. It is just one scene very early. If you want to join the family and have a chance to get a ticket for the next one, it is going to be on Friday, March 19th. Now, 
Before that, we've got another special event available to all Film Spotting family members. No ticket required. No cost of entry. No, we wouldn't think to charge you it will, <laughs> to watch. It will only cost you your shame. <laughs> your shame. Your dignity. You're going to watch Top Gun with us on March 6th, which will actually commemorate 16 years and a day from the time we posted the very first episode of Film Spotting ever. Ross Bratton on Twitter, a regular trivia spotter, asks, is there a backup plan for the Film Spotting watch party if Top Gun needs to be burned? It's true. We'll find out in a second. It's in round one, and it faces a very tough competitor. Well, what if, I'm not saying this is true, but what if, Adam, there was a bunker somewhere, maybe, ah. where, maybe where they keep those the seeds for the future, you know? I think that's in Norway. <laughs> Yeah. That certain titles have been slipped into over the years that were supposed to have been incinerated. Mm-hmm. That's one way to possibly save. Although okay. I don't, I don't know that Top Gun is bunker worthy, but maybe that's how we could do it. Yeah, I like that plan. It may be our only option. Annual memberships also now available. You get a ten percent discount, so you pay five dollars a month and support the show, or you can get more than one month free with that annual membership. Patreon.com slash film spotting time now for massacre theater the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt a couple weeks ago adam and i massacred this scene i want to know what you got going on down here i don't understand son you want to know about every half-ass scam don't amount to none that's right look i don't mean any disrespect i mean i know you're a skipper and i'm a nobody but uh, i can't do that to lefty Listen to me, you clock stuffer. I'll eat your fuzzy bolts for breakfast. You understand me? Every fussing one of you. This is life and death. Not a fussing game, Donnie. This is my say so. You tell me. Can't do it, son. How about if I fussing whack you right here and now? That was a very foul-mouthed Michael Madsen and Johnny Depp in 1997's Donnie Brasco, written by Paul Atanasio, based on the book by Joseph D. Pistone and Richard Woodley. It was directed by Mike Newell, who also made 1985's The Good Father, starring Anthony Hopkins. Along with that massacre, we had a review of Judas and the Black Messiah and the first movie in our 40s noir marathon, William Wyler's The Letter with Betty Davis. So why that obscure clock-stuffing scene from Donnie Brasco, Josh? <laughs> well, here's Carrie Fervor from Tustin, California. The reference to Vinny and the many expletives made me wonder if it wasn't some sort of Joe Pesci gangster movie. But I'm going with Donnie Brasco as my guess because it's got plenty of expletives as well, as well as a strong connection to Judas and the Black Messiah. Both films involve infiltrators who are feeding information from an organization back to the FBI. There are lots of nuanced differences beyond that, such as the criminality of the organizations involved, including the FBI, and the voluntariness of the informants themselves. Brasco actually is an FBI agent, while Wild Bill was coerced into it. Is voluntariness a word, or did Kerry make it up? I'm fine with either answer. I'm going to go with it. Okay. Anthony Servo. He's in Winter Park, Florida, says, holy shoelaces, that was flicking difficult. (laughs) And Ian Mullen in Portland says, okay. Cards on the table. I love it. We've got a confession here, Josh. I thought for sure the Jackie and all of the swearing and the he's not a cop hint pointed to QT and Reservoir Dogs, but it did not fit. So I looked it up. I cheated. (gasps) However, I wanted to share a bit of business I recently learned. Substituting neutral language for expletives, a minced oath. 
It is always a pleasure to hear you both and your team do this thing you do. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for teaching me something. And I'm guessing most of our audience, I Googled it just to see what he was talking about. And he's right. That That is what it's called. It's a minced oath. A minced oath. oath. Okay. All right. We're, yes. We are now minced authors. Yes, we are. We we are very guilty of mincing oaths, Josh. <laughs> Reach in to the not at all brimming film spotting hat. In fact, maybe one of the lightest hats ever. I think that either our massacring or Sam's massacring of the script <laughs> made it so unintelligible that we only got a handful of entries. Tell us who this week's winner is. Hey, a win is still a win. So congratulations, Patrick Donges, right here in Chicago. Email. Feedback at filmspotting.net, Patrick, and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Massacre Theater, I know, everyone's bummed. It's going on hiatus as we work our way through film spotting madness. It will return in April. We promise. We threaten. <laughs> and speaking of madness. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This madness. Well, this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! It is time for round one, Josh. Very quickly, for any newcomers, Film Spotting Madness is our annual bracket-style tournament. 64 movies, only one survives, and this year, it's the best of the 80s. 32 matchups then in round one. Voting is live right now at filmspotting.net slash madness. And when you go visit filmspotting.net slash madness. You'll see links to our prediction bracket contest. We're highlighting this here because there is a deadline to enter. We're going to stop taking predictions at 11 a.m. Central Time on Monday, March 1st. Monday, March 1st, the deadline to make predictions and to vote in round one because that's when the polls will close. We're approaching 400 predictions right now, Josh, wow. as we tape... Yeah, and there will be a prize for the winner, maybe even a prize pack to be determined. You and I also participate in this contest, Josh, though the stakes are a little bit different for us. We have an internal contest. You, me, producer Sam, and the godfather of Film Spotting Madness, listener Mike Merrigan, we all compete, and the loser has to watch whatever the new Netflix Adam Sandler movie is. Yeah, we haven't determined even if there's technically going to be one within the next year, but we're guessing he'll have something out. And that's, we don't really get a prize among the four of us, right? There, there's only a penalty. That's, that's yes. the way we like to <laughs> play it. this. Well, it's your punishment that pleases me yeah, and vice versa. I, it shows you what your priorities are. Now, yeah. I also wonder, since we've opened this up to listeners, a prediction contest, uh, have we, did we determine last year? I think that was the first year we did prediction contest for listeners. Who placed last among the five, you know to, what? five no. to 700? Because that person should have had to watch Hubie Halloween as well, not just me. I agree. You okay. know what? We're adding those stakes to the game as well. There's Good. a prize pack and there's a penalty. And there's a if penalty. You finish at the bottom. Now, I'm just looking over the list of Sandler movies going back to 2015. The Ridiculous Six, The Do-Over, Sandy Wexler, The Week of, Murder Mystery, Hubie Halloween. Now, I have only seen one of those six movies, and that's because in 2019, I did come in last and yes. I had to watch Murder Mystery. Josh, did you lose all of the other years? I feel like I I did not come in last at least one other time. Okay. But now you're Maybe asking Mike. me 
you're asking, talk about a lightning round. You're asking me yeah. to differentiate between <laughs> six terrible Adam Sandler Netflix movies. I don't think I saw the do-over, but but go on. Let me let me see if I can answer that for you. Okay. Well, you know what? 2021's Adam Sandler entry is supposed to be Hustle, which I know you read the description of last week, and it's about basketball. basketball So you might be throwing this contest just to force yourself to watch it. It is currently in post production. And while you're looking, Josh, well, I can tell you, I can tell you, diary. Okay, fill us in. I'm pretty sure the do over 2016. I did not see that. So okay. we'll have to verify, but I think that I've I've only lost Adam what four times? Then I've only come only in last four. four. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get into some of the results from the play-in round, and we do talk about the round one matchups, let's hear from Madness Godfather Mike Merrigan. He's in Dover, New Hampshire. Hello, Adam, Josh, Sam, and Film Spotting Nation. Madness founding father Mike Merrigan here with an early look at this year's tournament. The plans are behind us, and the matchups are set. Is a tournament without the Breakfast Club invalid? Probably. Do more people need to watch Videodrome? Almost certainly. Is Josh going to lose this thing regardless of who made the big dance? Undoubtedly. And yet, here we go. The best of the 80s tourney features nostalgic franchise heavyweights like Indiana Jones, Star Wars, and Back to the Future. It has some of the greatest sci-fi films of all time, The Thing, Blade Runner, and Terminator. Films like The Shining and Aliens make the horror genre a serious contender, which is a fairly new development for the Madness Tournament. Film spotting darlings also appear. We're talking Grave of the Fireflies, Raging Bull, and Blue Velvet, so that Adam can keep his critics card for another year. Also, Madness favorites the Coen brothers have two entries in the tourney, which seems almost unfair. And hey, at least Moonstruck has a shot. I mean, who would have wanted to say anything in an 80s tournament anyway? I don't see any big round one upsets coming, but I bet Sam does, and that's why he's my pick to win the bracket. Best to everyone, and see you all in round two. Thank you, Mike, for that perfect setup to Film Spotting Madness round one. And I also want to thank Mike for the amazing work he's doing because he's an essential healthcare worker, Josh. You might recall last March, Mm -hmm. we were just embarking on film spotting madness as the madness of covid was hitting the world and mike is one of those essential workers who spent like four months literally in a tent yeah in his backyard having to be quarantined from his family really tough times and i know we're not completely out of the woods or out of the backyard so to speak yet but mike i hope everyone is doing well and we appreciate your comments your snarkiness your support for my disappointment of the Breakfast Club somehow not being in this bracket of 64, he's mocking you a little bit, Josh, suggesting you're going to lose since you have the most. But here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to be mean a little bit to Mike. Mm. I've seen his bracket. Okay. I haven't looked at yours. And unless you went really nuts, I don't know. I you think, think he's Mike, in trouble? I think Mike's in trouble. That's what I'm going to say. But I what lo- do I know? It is Film Spotting Madness. I love to hear it. Okay. The play-in results. Yes, we did have 30 matchups to determine 30 movies that would make the bracket of 64. And we are not going to review the results of all 30 of them. But I thought, Josh, we would at least highlight a few of them. For me, I wanted to highlight the ones that we touched on last week. I said these were my toughest, the ones that were the most difficult to choose. We had a baseball trifecta. 
Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, and The Natural. I went with Field of Dreams. So did our listeners. The Vietnam trifecta, Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July. Really tough for me to choose between what I think is probably the better of the Oliver Stone movies, Born on the Fourth, and the Stanley Kubrick movie, Full Metal Jacket. I went Born on the Fourth, our listeners went Full Metal Jacket. The Indio Tours one was really tough for me. Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It. Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. And John Sayles' Mate One. I went with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Our listeners were with me on that one. Errol Morris, very tough choosing between Gates of Heaven, Vernon, Florida, and The Thin Blue Line. I went with Gates a little reluctantly over The Thin Blue Line. Our listeners did go with The Thin Blue Line. And the last tough one for me was the non-raging bull, Marty Scorsese. King of Comedy, After Hours, Last Temptation of Christ, or The Color of Money. It was between The King of Comedy and The Color of Money for me, and I just am a bigger fan of The Color of Money. I adore that movie. Our listeners went with The King of Comedy, starring Robert De Niro. Will Krischke said, this is like putting Duke, UNC, Gonzaga, and Michigan into an NCAA play-in. Fatally flawed. He said, Josh. And this is a good opportunity to remind people that when you make your votes, please do comment because we read those. We'll collect those and share some of the best ones on the show. We also got this bit of feedback. Speaking of comments, Josh, from Drew Brett in response to our third entries play. And it was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade against Return of the Jedi. And Drew Brett said, oh, oh, no. Oh, dear, this is very bad. Very bad indeed. How do you compare Jedi, which isn't the most well-made Star Wars movie, but is essential to the character's arcs, Luke mainly, to unquestionably the best Indiana Jones movie ever? Hmm? Excuse me while I consult chicken entrails or bones or something else like that, I guess. Drew throwing some heat there, saying that The Last Crusade is better than one of our top seeds, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but there will be two Indiana Jones movies, not two Star Wars movies, in the 64, Josh, because The Last Crusade did defeat Return of the Jedi. I'm going to say if Raiders ever went up against The Last Crusade, and this is coming from someone who, as you do, Adam, really, really likes The Last Crusade, Mm -hmm. Drew would probably be the only one voting for it over Raiders. Yeah. He might. He just might. Some other close and compelling play-in contests. Well, this wasn't close. It really wasn't compelling for me. It was predictable for me, sadly. We had the Josh versus Adam ceremonial matchup. Your beloved Gremlins versus my beloved The World According to Garb. Are you happy Josh Gremlins made it and made it resoundingly? Oh, yeah. 77%. I do love to see that. Though you asked Adam, you know, you mentioned Mike may have uh, gone a little crazy on his prediction bracket. Do you think it's a problem that I wrote in the Gremlins all the way to the championship, just hoping they really mess this thing up? You you think that's going to be bad? I I take it all back. I think you are (laughs) going to lose. (laughs) We also had a John Hughes matchup, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Here it is versus The Breakfast Club. I thought I was just amusing Sam when he suggested this. There's no way The Breakfast Club would lose. And it did. At least it was kind of close. 56% Ferris was saved 
to the Breakfast Club's 44%, Josh. We got this comment from Neil Brown. First of all, let me say thank you, thank you, thank you. I was pleasantly surprised, nay, excited and thrilled to my core when I heard the This Is Madness audio sequence in the middle of your latest episode. I'm so happy it's returned. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so, so, so much. And also, how dare you? Breakfast Club versus Ferris Bueller, <laughs> having either in the play-in round is an insult. Having both in there is just unconscionable. And putting them against each other, guaranteeing one of them is out of the best of the 80s contest before it begins. Well, sirs, you are just monsters through and through. I love this so much. Thanks again. <laughs> conflicted Neil is. Yeah, yeah. Very conflicted. Once people get a look at the brackets and they fill out their bracket challenges, I think they're going to see that how Ferris Bueller goes could really determine how film spotting madness goes. I just don't know, mm. Josh. It's a movie that I think could go at least to the Elite Eight, or maybe it's out in round two. Okay, well, I don't now, know. Now I might have to revise my prediction bracket. So, <laughs> our two closest Woody's Crimes and Misdemeanors versus Hannah and Her Sisters. Crimes just took it 51% to 49%. It's got a tough matchup, though, here in round one. I'm not sure it's going to escape. And the classic cops matchup this is a true story, Josh. Polls closed at 11 a.m. Central Time this past Monday. We pitted Beverly Hills Cop versus Lethal Weapon versus Midnight Run, a movie that is in the film spotting pantheon. And Midnight Run advances. Here are the percentages. 28% for Lethal Weapon. 35.72% for Beverly Hills Cop. 35.87% for Charles Grodin, Robert De Niro, and Midnight Run. Two votes. That I'm going to say that is because it got a trivia spotting bump because we spent a fair amount of time talking about Midnight Run. I, I forget yeah. how it came up. A lot of people expressed their admiration and affection for that movie. I don't know. I wonder if those two votes came out of trivia spotting. You never know. So we are now ready to talk about round one. And just like last week with the play-ins, rather than talking about all 32 matchups, I thought we'd focus on the ones that gave us the most anxiety. What stood out to you, Josh? All right, so my anxiety list. Well, it was it's summed up very well by Julio Oliveira Mendoza. He left this comment on our Patreon page for the Film Spotting Family, Adam. Did not anticipate freezing on Die Hard versus Roger Rabbit. And, I knew that would be hard for you. And I got to like, you know, this happens often, but what a what a bizarre pairing. Uh th this is to even think about these two films against each other. I went, I think I've mentioned this before on the show, I went with Die Hard in honor of my mom. It was one of her, she was a big action movie fan. And this Love was, it. This was perhaps her favorite action movie. So a uh, little sentimental with my vote there. But I also thought, you know, there are other and better, I would say, Zemeckis movies in the tournament. Sometimes that's the way I think about these things is look at what other movies a filmmaker might have that I could vote for somewhere else. So for me, I realized that there was a common theme in that some of my toughest, most of my toughest were comedies over really serious dramas. And I was, for the most part, Josh, picking the comedies over the really serious dramas. So this would include the aforementioned The Elephant Man versus Spinal Tap. And I do truly adore that David Lynch film, but I can't imagine a world without Spinal Tap. I love Agnes Varda's Vagabond. The best film of our Agnes Varda Marathon. Certainly one of the best films of the 80s. But Raising Arizona, that Coen Brothers gem, yeah, I want it to advance, and I picked it. 
How about Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander losing, for me, to A Fish Called Wanda? Those three movies just happen to be not just my three favorite comedies of the 80s, but I think maybe my three favorite comedies ever. Spinal Tap, Raising Arizona, and A Fish Called Wanda. So, yeah, they took down those heavyweights. But unlike a lot of our listeners, probably most of our listeners, and probably you, no, I did not pick Tim Burton's Beetlejuice over Grave of the Fireflies. Mm, yeah, I'm probably going to have to go with Beetlejuice there. That wasn't uh, necessarily one of my difficult ones. Another tough one for me as I was looking over the list was Thin Blue Line versus The Right Stuff. I imagine this yeah. is going to come up for you too, Adam. You know, the Errol Morris doc, and I went that direction. I think, you know, it's the smaller movie for sure, maybe less representative in the culture at large of the 1980s. But I think you could you could argue it has made, had more of an influence, uh, at least in the world of filmmaking, for good and for bad, you know, in terms of the true crime documentaries and now podcasts that were awash in. So for whatever reason, that's that's why I gave The Thin Blue Line the edge. So one that gave me pause, don't get me wrong. I mentioned it was hard enough having to pick Gates of Heaven over The Thin Blue Line in the play-in round, but I wouldn't necessarily put it in my top five toughest just because my love for the right stuff is too great. So a relatively easy pick for me, much easier than the pick that was my toughest, Josh, the fathers and sons matchup of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade versus Field of Dreams. And even though I do not agree with our listener, Drew, who says that the Last Crusade is unquestionably the best Indiana Jones movie, I think it's unquestionably a great movie, one of my favorite Spielbergs, a great action movie, and... I can't believe I'm picking against it, but I am, Josh. That is the soft spot in my heart I have for Field of Dreams. Maybe it's the Iowa thing. Maybe it's the baseball thing, the one sport I really grew up loving and also playing. And just something about the magic of that movie and everything surrounding James Earl Jones character being the former hippie activist writer who has to be taken out of his seclusion and come back and engage with the world. I love it. I can't believe it, but it's my pick. Well, here's where I prove my my love for The Last Crusade is it was pretty easy for me to vote for, for that over Field of Dreams, which I do like. A tough one for me, though, The Fly versus Ghostbusters. And I think I went with The Fly because- what? Though I still, well, this shouldn't surprise you. I mean, we've revisited Ghostbusters and, and I've uh -huh. talked about how it's, you know what, it's related to Adam, another conversation we had during trivia spotting, uh, Mariah Gates brought up, I forget again, the context it came up with, but we started talking about movies you loved when you were younger and how it's okay to love them if they still, she made this point, great point, if they still give you the same feeling that you had when you were younger. And so we got into this discussion about nostalgia and, you know, what's good nostalgia, what's bad nostalgia. Ghostbusters, I think, I, I suggested that everyone should try to identify a movie they loved as a kid that just doesn't work for them anymore, just so they can test themselves and say they're being honest. Not that you have to hate it, but that you're kind of like, eh, yeah. And for me, that's Ghostbusters. Still like it, but it's not at all the experience I had as a kid. So even though I'm a fan, again, this, this was a tough choice for me. That's why I went with The Fly. Hmm. What are those things on their backs, like proton packs, neutron, something? I'm taking those over the pods <laughs> of the fly okay. every day of the week, Josh. Were there any others that were 
particularly hard for you? Yeah, I've got one more, and it was Empire Strikes Back versus The Sacrifice. Oh, um, man. <laughs> I mean, again, here's another pairing. Like, why? why the, it's <laughs> yeah. Some of these, yeah. you just, are, uh, why are we doing this? I mean, uh, you know, when you get mm-hmm. the father pairings that you had, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. You can sure. you can make the points of uh, similarity and help to make your decision. Then you have the best Star Wars movie versus a, a classic Andre Tarkovsky movie, and you don't even, I don't know how to proceed. Right. Okay, so I did go with Empire, and the logic here, there is not a better Star Wars movie than The Empire Strikes Back. There are better Tarkovskys, even though The Sacrifice is great. I mean, it's okay. it's it's up there, but I can name others that I think are better, that I like better. So just to make me feel better, I tell myself that and vote Empire. <laughs> I love your rationale, Josh, and that actually perfectly sets up a point I wanted to make. Even though I did have that tough battle, Last Crusade versus Field of Dreams, and those comedies over those great heavyweight dramas, I was shocked at how relatively easy round one was for me to pick. Not necessarily predict, but to pick. I feel like round one is usually a lot harder than this. The play-ins were harder than this. And I will just note, if anyone else had that same reaction— just wait until round two and the sweet 16, because it is going to get so much harder if you didn't think it was hard enough already. And here's an example, Josh. I think if things proceed the way I think some of us reasonably could expect they will, I think it's the sweet 16 where Empire Strikes Back is going to go against my neighbor Totoro. You I... and other listeners are going to have to choose yeah. whether or not the Empire Strikes Back continues to exist or Totoro. You're going to throw Totoro in the fire. I have seen that in my future. And yeah, the, the name of my prediction bracket speaks to that. So Okay. Well, I cannot wait to see it. Really quickly, I'll mention the three matchups that I thought were the toughest to predict. I actually thought it would be a toss-up between Ron. I don't think it should be, but between Ron, the Akira Kurosawa masterpiece, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, I really didn't know whether or not the Scorsese love And the king of comedy would actually take down a really beloved film like Broadcast News. And then we go to the Coen Brothers, another entry in this bracket, Blood Simple versus Paris, Texas. Josh, we just talked about Paris, Texas as a bonus episode for our patrons, part of our extended 8 from 84 series. I watched this film and realized it was a masterpiece like Ron. Definitely for me, one of the films that should go pretty deep into this bracket And I know some of our listeners played along and watched it with us and heard us talk about how amazing it is, but Blood Simple is the Cone Brothers, and I have a feeling it's probably going to win. Yeah, that's a tough one for me as well. We've learned you shouldn't bet against the Cone Brothers in any madness tournament, right? But as you said, when we revisited Paris, Texas, people were coming out of the woodwork to say how important that movie was to them. Now, are there enough of those people? I don't know. That's what makes it hard to predict. The one here that I look at my prediction bracket that I scratched out and put back in trying to figure this out is Field of Dreams versus Indiana Jones and the Last really? Crusade. Yeah, because it it just, I think, speaks to the different sorts of nostalgia going on there, even though there are common themes, as you described. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think people have different sorts of attachments to both of those movies that are equally strong, and I'm just not sure how to predict where they're going to go. So what did you predict, Josh? I'm not going to tell you. 
Well, I already filled out my bracket. I had to do it before the voting started. Come on. I did go with Field of Dreams. Okay, I think you're wrong. I think Les Crusades going to run away with it, mm. despite my vote for Field of Dreams. Voting in round one of Film Spotting Mad is Best of the 80s is live. You can vote. You can leave comments. You can send all kinds of vitriol our way at filmspotting.net slash madness. That's also where you can fill out a bracket in that bracket prediction contest. We will just remind you one more time. Round one voting and the bracket contest sign up ends on Monday, March 1st at 11 a.m. Central Time. And then round two voting will start later that day, the afternoon of Monday the 1st. Our Film Spotting family members on Patreon and our newsletter subscribers get a first shot at the polls. More info at patreon.com slash filmspotting and at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Date of birth? Friday, 31st of December, 1937. You're living with your daughter at the moment? Yes, until she goes to live in Paris. No, Dad, why do you keep going on about Paris? You told me. No, I didn't. I'm sorry, Anne, you told me the other day. Have you forgotten? She's forgotten. <laughs> Paris. They don't even speak English there. <laughs> Back to our Anthony Hopkins talk. That's from the trailer for The Father, starring Hopkins and Olivia Coleman, directed by Florian Zeller, based on his own play. In the film, Hopkins plays an aging man with dementia, Coleman, his daughter. We've been hearing about this one, Josh, since early last year when it played the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. It was originally scheduled for a fall 2020 release, but it got pushed back along with so many other movies. It is opening now in limited release. It will come to VOD on March 26th. I did not get a chance to rewatch this movie, and I saw it right before we submitted our critics' ballots for the year and did our top 10 shows, which at this point is a good two months ago. Still, I hope to have a cogent thought or two, Josh. I'm more curious to hear, though, your thoughts having watched it fairly recently. Yeah, well, I'll I'll get to spoiler. I'll get to what I thought of Hopkins um, in it when I get to the rest of my list. But as far as the film itself, you know, Florian Zeller um, adapted this from his own play uh, with the help of co-writer Christopher Hampton and I really appreciated the structure, what this material is doing, because we we talk so much about movies being acts of empathy, Adam, and this is literally that because, and this, this won't be a spoiler, the entire structure of the movie is to let you experience the discombobulation that Anthony, this octogenarian played by Hopkins, experiences himself. So they do that by having, you know, we meet Olivia Coleman first as this daughter, Anne, and then not too long into the movie, there's a scene where another woman, Olivia Williams is the actor, shows up claiming to be Anne, or he thinks she's Anne. And we're wondering now, have we missed something? Um, And at first I put it on me. I didn't realize what the movie was doing. I was like, oh man, I, I, I thought I was paying attention. There are scenes that repeat. There is dialogue that repeats. There's a very extended circular sequence where Jude Law, as Anne's husband, Coleman's husband, is at the dinner table with them. And uh, the way they move, I'm sure the stage play was like this too, but the way Zeller moves the actors in and out of rooms at different times and even uses the space of this large mm-hmm. London flat, we're not quite sure if it's Anne's flat or Anthony's flat because he's not. So all of this, really straight through to the end almost, lets us experience, and of course this is speculation, you know, we we don't entirely know. We don't have the science to, to know what the experience of dementia is like from the inside. But 
I will say I was grateful for this speculation because I, I've talked before in other movies like Dick Johnson is dead last year, experiencing the, the confusion my grandfather is experiencing. And what the father did for me is I thought I probably had an idea of what it was like for him when he expresses confusion and I try to, to, to reorient him, but I never felt it the way I feel it now after watching the father. And so I'm mm-hmm. just grateful to this movie for, for giving me that. And what I hope is a little bit more understanding and doing it through such accomplished filmmaking. Yeah. I really appreciate Hopkins here and Coleman and the supporting cast. And you know, Josh, I'm generally an admirer of movies that are formally daring. And this movie is in all the ways that you articulated. I also think the father is closest in terms of form to another movie that you know and listeners know I absolutely adore. We just talked about it last year as part of our Nolan series, and that's Memento, actually. Mm. Now, the filmmaker here isn't playing with chronology and time the same way that Nolan is, or at least the exact same way, but he is just as concerned with disorientation and, as you said, with putting the viewer in the same confused, bewildered, sometimes scary place as his main character by cutting between those locations and exchanges and characters in a way I had the same word in my notes. It's discombobulating. There's one cut. I love too. I wish I had had a chance to go back and really break it down, but there's a pretty big dinner scene confrontation. And all of a sudden, just with a subtle cut that then shows us just a different perspective on the room, we realize that we're in sort of a different time and place. Yeah. Oh, time. Definitely. Right. It's, it's very different than some of the other, scenes the movie is constructed on where you watch him walk into a space or watch a character walk into a space and you know a new scene is beginning this is one where with just that little cut you know everything has changed that's really exhilarating you know what it is in in some of those cuts i think adam is the lighting shifts so that we seem to recognize before the cut it was morning light and then after the cut, it's twilight. It's afternoon. There's just a, a subtle differentiation in that where we su- feel like a whole day has disappeared on us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so just like Hopkins' character, you're always getting your bearings. You're always trying to process what might be real or who is real versus who is maybe fantasy. It's undeniably effective. So much so that I wonder if it's actually too effective, Josh. And You mentioned empathy and the way it expresses that for Hopkins' character. This is the question I'm left with. At Mm -hmm. what point does empathy fall into, however unintentionally, antipathy for the audience, if not for the subject? And what I mean is, at some point, I was aware that I wasn't really watching any of these characters on a journey. I didn't I didn't have a sense at all of the destination. I was watching a very painful struggle, scene after scene after scene of painful struggle, and the ratio of revelation to struggle, of new information to struggle was continually diminishing, and it actually did for me become more of a morbid exercise in acting and editing and cinematography, albeit incredibly well-crafted. Watching the father, for me, felt like cinematic rubbernecking, if that makes any sense. It was like I was watching hmm. a terrible accident play out before my eyes. Boy, I, I 
can only imagine not doing it in this format would have resulted in exactly that. I think by experiencing it ourselves, that's what distinguishes it. Uh, and and the reality is, and I admire the guts of the movie to stick to this, is this is a downward spiral. I mean, if you're if you're looking for this trajectory to change, that would be against all human experience of this this you know this disease. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's rough. It's honest. I'm not denying that. Yeah. It's, it's honest. And I'm not offering this as a defense because it's something I needed, but I do think it's there. I, I didn't need any sort of narrative progression, but I do think Anthony, the character and we as his surrogates in a way are in very different places at the end of the father than he and we were at the beginning. And so I guess maybe that's why I didn't find it tedious or, or repetitive is because there, there is movement. It's not a progression. It's a descent. But there's definitely movement and there's some – that makes it, I guess for me, made it more of a shifting experience than a repetitive one. Yeah, I get it. And I think I felt that repetitiveness more than you. I didn't sense as much movement. As you, it's probably a terrible analogy because I just came up with it. But you know, if you were watching a movie about someone's existence where they pretty much got flogged every day of their life, well, you could make a movie where you showed that, where you tried to dramatize that, and it might be really honest. But not only is it not entertaining, it's not necessarily dramatic. And at some point, it actually feels like piling on some kind of cinematic piling on. That's what it was but for me if, watching The Father. What if that's what it's like? I mean, I know there, there's, yeah. There's something to be said for for going through that, even though after, what, an hour and 50 minutes, we get to escape. But then I just feel like not only am I suffering, but I'm just I'm almost taking pleasure is the wrong word, but I'm deriving all of the dramatic pleasure of the movie out of just watching variations on this character suffering. And that feels slightly wrong to me. I'm not saying the movie's doing anything wrong morally. I'm just describing the experience for me watching it. Yeah, and I, I guess if you come away with a certain understanding, then maybe the experience is worth it. Again, The Father is currently playing in limited release. It'll be available on VOD on March 26. That brings us back to our top five Anthony Hopkins performances. And uh, we'll keep talking about The Father here because that's what I have at number three. Uh, I mentioned his ability with line readings I wanted to talk about, and I think it is pertinent to this performance uh, as Anthony, there's a moment where he asks, what's going to become of me? And Hopkins, you know, that's a heavy line if you just read it. He somehow delivers it so it's it's a casual aside almost when he says it at the moment, but he puts something underneath there so you recognize that it's also this cry from a dark night of the soul. And it's just Hopkins' ability. I mean, line readings... I don't, I've never acted. What I've learned about it is simply from watching on screen or in the theater, but it seems like line readings is is where you start, right? Here's your dialogue. What are you going to do with it? Maybe, maybe it's like the, the basic element. So it's, it's not revelatory to say Anthony Hopkins is good at line readings, but he will say things in such a way that there are so many levels of meaning to it as, as well as an air of mystery to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just astounding to me. I, it's one of the things about acting I don't understand. I, I can see it when it's happening, but I don't know how a great actor does it. And maybe there's another example in The Father where sometimes doing that layering 
is a disservice and it would overdo things. And so think about how the moment, Adam, where he's been dismissing or berating Anne, his daughter, played by Olivia Coleman, pretty much the whole movie, right? And then he gets this moment where it's he says this almost as an afterthought after we've watched him do this to her, the whole movie. Anne, thank you for everything. This yeah. one is it's truly an aside. It, it's like it's like he's letting go of the words the same as he'd set down a teacup, just not even thinking much about it. But because uh, he gives it that lightness, it, it makes it more devastating for her, and it doesn't overemphasize things and kill the moment. So I just think Father is a great example of his talent for that. And I also think, you know, what I was glad about the performance, maybe this speaks to your reservations, Adam, which I do understand. I don't think the movie limits the character to Anthony's confusion. It would would have been more of a chore for me to the degree you were talking about if it did that. Think about the scene where he's really dazzling, turning on the charm for a new potential caregiver. And how about that little, like, 15-second scene where he's looking out of his bedroom window and he has this sweet smile as he watches this boy play with a plastic bag on the street in the wind for a couple of moments. That's a small but crucial moment of happiness that that gives another uh, level of understanding to us of Anthony's experience. So, so yeah, the father, really glad uh, I was able to catch up with it and landed here at number three. Do you know, I give everything I own for a glass of whiskey. Don't you agree? Well, I don't own all that much, so... <laughs> oh, really? What do you do for a living? Um, I look after other people. Other people? Hmm. Yeah, my job is to help people who need help. <laughs> oh. Sounds like one of those girls you're always trying to dump off a maid here. Must be a difficult job, though, isn't it? I mean, uh, spending all day with one of those. Ugh, I mean, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What did you do for a living? Oh, I was a dancer. Were you? Yes. Dad? What? You were an engineer. What do you know about it? Yes, tap dancing was my specialty. Really? You seem surprised. Yeah, a little bit. Why, don't you believe me? Or you find that difficult to imagine? <laughs> of course, it's just, I've, I've always loved tap dancing. You really? Wow, I'm still great at it. I'll show you. It really is a great performance, and it's one that would fit in nicely with my top five and my approach, because on some level, he's a character who obviously is in conflict with himself. And there is this more vulgar, more argumentative, more confrontational, angry man mm-hmm. that's that's inside because he's at war with himself. He's at war with his own mind. And then we also have the glimpses of the man that he probably really is, the man who he's always been, someone who is a charmer and someone who is more calm and rational and genial. And those words there really nicely describe the character Hopkins plays in my number three pick, but that doesn't mean the war isn't still raging inside him. It's Frederick Treves from David Lynch's The Elephant Man. And I'm going to let a longtime listener and a huge fan of this film, Josh Youngerman, do the honors. Hey, guys. Um, it's uh, Josh Youngerman calling in with my favorite. And I don't know if this is my favorite Anthony Hopkins performance. Um, he's one of my favorite actors and one of the first actors I actually discovered as like a younger person, um, you know, growing up you know, through Silence of the Lambs and other movies. But, um, and again, like, I'm not sure it's my favorite, but I really love his performance um, in The Elephant Man. And I know he sort of in recent years has said that he didn't really think his performance as uh, Frederick Treves 
he wasn't as satisfied with it, largely because he didn't feel like he had much to do. But I think for two reasons. Um, one, it's my favorite David Lynch film, one of my favorite films of all time. But I also think the performance really, for a while at least, walks this line between you're not really sure whether this doctor is exploiting John Merrick or if he really genuinely cares about him. And I think sort of we realized towards the end that I think he does genuinely care about him. And I think going back to sort of the Ebert um, quote that sticks out for me, movies are empathy machines. Um, and I think the elephant man is an empathy machine. And I think Hopkins performance actually is a big part of why. Uh, so anyways, um, love the show and looking forward to seeing your picks. So I think Josh gets at the heart of it there. And if you think about maybe the most memorable line that comes from John Hurt to John Merrick in The Elephant Man, I'm not an animal, I'm a human being. I mean, Merrick says that, but it's central to Hopkins' character here. And of course, in some of these other great roles, where is that line? And are you more human the more you actually do give in to your flaws or the more you accept your primal self? The world that Merrick comes from, the one of his owner, right, the character Bites, who's just reprehensible, he represents incivility and vulgarity and evil. And Treves, of course, is the opposite. He's civility, he's science, he's compassion. And yet, as I said, the conflict is there. What he recognizes in himself is the potential that maybe he's really no different. Maybe he's no better than Bites. And he expresses that. It seems that I've made Mr. Merrick into a curiosity all over again, doesn't it? I mean, this time in a hospital rather than a carnival. My name is constantly in the papers. I'm always being praised to the skies. Patients are now expressly asking for my services. Of course they do, because you're a very fine doctor. John Merrick is happier and more fulfilled now than he's ever been in his entire life, and it's completely due to you. What was it all for? Why did I do it? Freddie, what are you trying to say? Am I a good man? Or am I a bad man? Am I a good man or a bad man? Is Captain Bly a good man or a bad man? Is Charles Morris from The Edge a good man or a bad man? Some of the men on your list, Josh? I mean, even Lecter, to an extent, the line is blurred. And that there are many ways that he treats Clarice better than any other man in the movie does, right? So that line is always blurred with these great Hopkins characters. And what I love about this performance in particular and that scene is it's one where there's there's no eruption. There's no Mount Hopkins. It's just the stillness of the mm -hmm. volcano. And you've got the soft voice. You've got those eyes, those icy Hopkins eyes, even in black and white, that are unflinching, unblinking. And I think really what's so powerful about his take on Treves is that his dilemma is ours as viewers. Like, what empathy do we truly feel for Merrick? What level of disgust do we have to actually acknowledge what level of curiosity, kind of morbid curiosity? I think Hopkins' performance is crucial. He's our surrogate. We reckon with our own conflict through him in The Elephant Man. His stillness in that scene is so striking. I mean, he, yeah. he doesn't move his head. He barely even moves his eyes as he's speaking. And it also makes me wonder if he can be sometimes a hard actor to act opposite of, you know, because if, if you're looking for 
information to to react to as the other actor to give back to in these moments of stillness. It's, it's just like this gravitational pull. He's, he's bringing all of our attention and the drama into him and it's for good effect, but I just wonder if it's difficult yeah. to kind of react to that. All right. Stillness is uh, uh, definitely a quality. I think we talked about it in our sacred cow review of the silence of the lambs. Adam, um, it's a quality of hers performance as Lecter. This is my number two pick. I think there's also a quality at the forefront here, which for me is a defining element of a Hopkins screen presence, and that is reticence. I think you've used the word restraint, um, which is which is similar. And for me, reticence is is a key quality. This holding back uh, of being withdrawn. And what's interesting about Lecter, usually. Hopkins employs reticence as a defense. So especially think about the Merchant Ivory productions like Howard's End, Remains of the Day. You know, it's this defensive tactic. In silence, reticence is offensive. He uses yeah. it as a weapon. Yep. It's a way to subtly attack. And partly this is because he's often withholding information, you know, usually from Jodie Foster's uh, Starling. But it's also how his quietness, here's his stillness again, does open up this empty space that Lecter has created so that other characters will fill that with their inner fears and their trauma. And then once he has that information, that's how he gets the upper hand psychologically on them. A really great example of this is the scene that the movie's title comes from, where he gets Starling to share that crucial childhood memory. What became of your lamb, Clarice? You still wake up sometimes, don't you? You wake up in the dark and hear the screaming of the lambs. Yes. And you think if you save poor Catherine, you could make them stop, don't you? You think if Catherine lives, you won't wake up in the dark ever again to that awful screaming of the lambs. I don't know. The other hallmark of uh, Hopkins' turn as Lecter, I think, is that this is the rare miracle of a performance that is at once gargantuan and acutely observed. It keeps going back and forth. So you get the line about the fava beans, you get the slurp, you get the way he says Clarice, you know, so each letter is its own fava Mm -hmm. bean. But then consider those moments, consider the moment when he asks Clarice to show him her credentials, tells her to come closer. Closer is a big moment, but then he also gives it a little touch. When she steps forward, he holds his gaze on her face, a still couple of beats, longer than necessary, then lets his eyes drop down to the badge. So it's a little touch like that. Or the other moment where Clarice reminds him what he did with his quote-unquote trophies. She says, you ate yours. And in response, he just fleetingly closes his eyes. You'd almost miss it. But it's this little shiver of blissful memory that is maybe the most frightening gesture he does in the film. So the the shifting of gears he does as Lecter from this Dracula drama to this insinuating subtlety is just so impressive. Yeah, it really is. And let's go ahead and just let the cat out of the bag here. We share the top two Anthony Hopkins performances, and that's because sometimes there's just a correct answer. And you've got <laughs> Dr. Hannibal Lecter at number two in The Silence of the Lambs and James Stevens from Remains of the Day at number one. And I love it, Josh, because this is the showdown where it all comes together. The list finally culminates because you have the ultimate portrait of restraint and manners 
in James Stevens versus the ultimate monster, the man who potentially wastes his entire life with no regard for personal joy or satisfaction, only thinking about service versus the man, the monster, who won't waste a second of life taking whatever he wants. This is it. Like we've talked about Hopkins as an actor erupting in some of these scenes, but this is where with Lecter, the monster is finally fully unleashed. In other cases, he's passive or he's passively aggressive. You mentioned his offensive reticence. Here it's it's all insistence. It's provocation. He's imposing himself in his own subtle way sometimes and his desire to be satiated on everyone he encounters, even if it means literally devouring them like he's an animal. But what I also love about Lecter is that it's this weird confluence where his heightened civility and sophistication is also what kind of drives the monster side. I mean, I don't remember much about the movie Hannibal, but isn't that the movie that opens with Lecter watching a symphony and an oboe player or something is just slightly out of tune and Lecter hears it and he knows that that vulgarity can't stand <laughs> that, that I'm going to have that guy for dinner because he ruined that piece of music. And why does he despise Chilton so much in the silence of the lambs? It's because he's a fraud. Mm-hmm. It's because he's so far beneath him and he knows that he's a fraud and you see in him as monstrous as he is, this sense of order and decorum and respect for Clarice, and that's why he punishes someone like Miggs, right? Because he crosses a line of manners that Lecter finds going too far. That's beyond the pale, is treating that FBI agent, treating that woman in that way. That's something he would never do, and Clarice knows it. She says it later, right, when they find out that he's escaped, and she says, he'll he'll never come for me. Right. I can't explain it. But I know it's right. And we know it's right, too, because we understand that fundamentally about who Lecter is. She says something about, like, he would consider that bad yeah. taste or something. He considered right? it rude. Yeah, rude. I think yeah. something, something like that. But here's the thing about Lecter. He is, at the end of the day, just human. There's, there's a depravity to him that surpasses Buffalo Bill or other serial killers maybe we've seen on screen. I think there's a terror that overrides and and beats other movie monsters and i mean actual monsters josh like monsters that you should really be afraid of in a supernatural way and i think it's because of that sense of control that that he delights in and the pleasure he takes from it you really get the sense that hopkins lecter is capable of anything like he's creative you know a monster in a horror movie is just going to devour you might gut you but kill you And Lecter turns it into an art. Think about the scene with the sheriff's deputies and the way he turns it into a performance art piece, which also I did think about this a lot. And it occurred to me that all the other times I watched this movie, I really thought that was just an example of his depravity and his creativity. Like he couldn't he couldn't help himself. He had to put on a little art show and hoist the sheriff or the deputy from the the cell that he was in. But also it's really practical. Because doing that, unnerving everyone in that way, subverting their expectations so profoundly when they walk into the room and they see that is partly what allows him to escape. 
right? Because yeah. they don't then know what to make of it. No, you're you're right. I remember watching it this time. I was kind of like, man, th- he wasted a lot of time doing all this. A but, lot of time. But no, but there was a that's reason. That's a good point, right? Yeah, I really think it was practical in addition to, obviously, he delighted in every moment of it. But there is just something about, and I know I'm probably saying something insanely obvious, about another human wanting to eat you. You know, not an animal, not a supernatural creature, but another human. It so subverts our understanding of nature and of our nature that it it does just add this layer of terror. I don't know that there's a scarier villain in the history of cinema than Hopkins Lecter. Yeah, you might you might be right. It is that connection and I think I think I talked about this in terms of the cinematography, right? There's that connection between the operatic craziness and the real world actual threat that we see uh, in the in the lighting in the film so often. But I think you do also get in Hopkins performance. Yeah. So I already said it remains of the day, though, is our number one, despite all that praise for the silence of the lambs and Lecter. That's how much we both appreciate remains of the day, a movie and a performance. I've actually talked about a lot here on the show, Josh. Remains of the Day, my number two film of 1993 on a show we did in 2013. On our Great Gatsby show, also 2013, my number two movie about the rich. And my number three overlooked film of the 90s, a show we did in 2018. But the key line in revisiting scenes from this movie is when she says to him, why Mr. Stevens, Emma Thompson, why must you always hide what you feel. This is that that restraint. This is the character who never really betrays how he feels about anything and in fact believes that his purpose in life, that his only function is to be of service to other people and to not really be an individual. And I think that's really the heartbreak of that character and of this movie and it's this dilemma I've been talking about throughout this top 5 where you have someone like Lecter succumbing to his his id to his depravity and you have this character steven succumbing to duty he he forgoes all pleasure and i don't know josh i'd like to believe maybe there's a middle ground somewhere between james steven's version of what life should be and the insanity of dr lecter that we need to carve out you're saying neither of them are quite stable maybe not the yes. most most uh, healthy mental figures. No, I think that's right. I think you're onto something there. And for me, you know, remains is at number one, uh, his best performance that I have seen. It is tied to this issue of reticence. It's the opposite of how it's used in silence. Extreme discretion here is the nuanced version of reticence we get. That's that's how Stevens is professionally. It's how he is personally. Even his laughter when it occurs is only for himself. I yes. think, you know, when he chuckles. <laughs> when a character leaves the room, you're right. And, and often it's at something in his own head. You know, yes. that, that yeah. it, but he's not going to laugh at anything anyone else says. And, uh, you know, just the drama with Miss Kenton, who is maybe the one person who's going to try to get him to open up to real feeling. He's not even going to allow that. I think for me, one of the, the many shattering moments in this movie uh, that captures the extent of his repression is that sequence where his Stephen's older father, he's hired mm. his father at Darlington Hall much older man, and he suffers a stroke while sweeping. Stevens comes, sees his father on his knees, one hand still grasping that cleaning cart. And for a moment, just like the briefest of moments, we see a shudder of terror cross Hopkins' face. 
and he quickly erases it. He just shuts mm-hmm. it down so that he can go and tend to the matter as professionally as possible. So how do we know, though, that there is a human being in there uh, beyond that like half a second moment we get? Well, this comes back to the line readings again. And there is the line he layers with so many meanings, so many emotions, when he's asked by a visiting butler, I think it is, who compliments Miss Kenton. Uh, it's just the two of them. She's not in the room. He just says to Stephen something complimentary about Miss Kenton being a good housekeeper. And Stephen says, I'd be lost without her. Now, that yeah. other character, the way Hopkins says it, that other character would have no reason to think he means anything other than right. she's a crucial member of my staff. Yes. But partly, yes, because of what we know from the rest of the film and partly because of something Hopkins does with the language. We feel the the depth, the loss and the longing there. We feel his affection for her, the depth of that. Yeah. We realize the despair of his realization in that moment, he's never going to have the emotional capacity to act on it. We're teased as the movie goes on that it might happen, but you get the feeling that's the moment where he knows deep in his heart, no matter how long he lives, no matter where their lives go, he's not going to allow himself to let it happen. So it's also, it's not as if Josh, he underlines it either. No, right. I don't think he, he doesn't, he doesn't infuse it with more melancholy than it needs. The melancholy is inherent to the character Mm -hmm. and he just lets the line and he lets his face, I think in this instance, do the work. Yeah, that's it. Yes. I, you know, I'm so glad that this was an excuse for me to finally catch up with it. It would definitely bump into my top five of 93. If I redid that list, I, I could just go on and on about it. I mean, there's the whole Nazi element, right? Which is tied to the shared theme of this movie is regret and the fact that his employer in the pre-war era that we see has uh, these uh, sympathies for Germany. You know, he, he has regret over Miss Kenton and he also, we see, has regret over how he responded to that. So, yes. so that is a wonderful thread. Thompson is so good. She's so good. As his opposite, right? Just mm-hmm. she's so open. Uh, Miss Kenton, just so open. The, this is like in the mood for love level of sad swooning that you get yeah. in this movie <laughs> yeah um, it is that good and so it is it's that's why this it's brings be. me such joy oh this brings me so much joy so because wonderful. i love this movie so much and i was talking to my daughter sophie today and she was asking me what films made my list and she hasn't watched remains of the day yet and i told her you're gonna have to watch it with me because you know, she's a big Taylor Swift fan and she was talking about how Taylor Swift and also she loves Before Sunrise because, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And the common denominator there is the yearning. <laughs> Sophie loves art that is about the yearning and Remains of the Day oh, yeah. is about the yearning. And I can make another connection. There is something that both James Stevens and Hannibal Lecter have in common. And I think actually, Josh, it's that sense of control. Or that desire sure. for a sense of control and stability. They actually do want to impose as much as they can structure the structure that they think the world needs onto the world around them. But you then can't take any risks. You have to live within that structure. You have to stifle any feelings that might then cause that structure and that routine to break. And the scene I've talked about on the show before, but the one that really gets me, I mean, the scene of the movie for me is one where it's really not about Hopkins in any line readings at all. It's all physical, and it's still full of surprises and full of yearning and full of heartbreak and regret. And it's the one where Miss Kenton provokes him 
mm. about a book he's reading. Yeah, yeah. Are you reading a racy book? Do you think racy books are to be found on his lordship's shelves? What do I know? What is it? Let me see it. Let me see your book. Please leave me alone, Miss Kenton. Why won't you show me your book? This is my private time. You're invading it. Oh, is that so? Yes. I'm invading your private time, am I? Yes. What's in that book? Come on, let me see. Or are you protecting me? Is that what you're doing? Would I be shocked? Would it ruin my character? Let me see it. The closest they come to consummating their relationship is that scene to an extent because of the subject matter, but also just because of their proximity to each other, the intimacy, the way they actually kind of bump up against each other, but the way he has to shield himself from her, the way psychologically he has to kind of detach himself because he can't give in to the feelings. He has to maintain that sense of order, that sense of duty. The remains of the day, if you haven't seen it, is so good. And you have two hosts now who are telling you that. Those are our top five Anthony Hopkins performances. Josh, did you have any other honorable mentions? Yeah, so I mentioned The Edge. Uh, really thought about that one. I do like that movie. And this surprised me. I asked for listeners' picks on my Larson on Film Facebook page just to see what people were thinking. And I was surprised to get some Meet Joe Black love. This is the 1998 Brad Pitt movie. Pitt plays death opposite Anthony Hopkins playing this widowed media mogul pondering his mortality. And um, yeah, I'll share this. Ethan McElhenney said, is Meet Joe Black a bad movie? Probably. But I really think Hopkins is dialed in and him wistfully noting 65 years, don't they go by in a blink, honestly kind of wrecked me. And I'm not even halfway there. Then I also heard from Seth Culp. He chimed in. I think Meet Joe Black is underrated. I find myself revisiting it every few years and enjoying it still each time. It's an easy target with Brad Pitt in his peak pretty boy mode, but Hopkins' performance is really what levels the movie out. He is as solid here as any other movie he's in. So all this, Adam, emboldened me to admit that I recalled enjoying Meet Joe Black quite a bit. So I went to my review archives, had to go to the print edition <laughs> of the regional news, and indeed I found this. It's Hopkins' generosity that's most admirable here. While brimming with intelligence and vigor as William Parrish, Hopkins still leaves room for his co-star to establish an entrancing presence of his own. So there, Adam, hmm. proof, evidence. My Brad Pitt love goes way yeah. back. <laughs> yeah. Way back. I still have not seen Meet Joe Black, and I wanted to do it as homework and then i saw the runtime yeah it's like three hours right it is yes but brad pitt's dopey face and keep in mind when that movie came out oh when that movie came out i was in my full-on brad pitt's not really a good actor phase which i've since abandoned yes because well i'm gonna say i think brad pitt has gotten considerably better as an actor let me (laughs) let me frame it that way but that's the mode i was in and Every time I saw any scenes from that movie with Pitt in it, it just reaffirmed my feelings. So I still have not watched Meet Joe Black. Three hours of Brad Pitt's dopey face. Sign me up. (laughs) Well, I like your Nixon pick. I like him as Henry Wilcox in Howard's End. I do like him as Richard in The Lion in Winter. I think he's really good in The Two Popes, his recent Oscar nomination, his most recent one. I think it's a really fascinating performance and one maybe off the beaten path. Hearts in Atlantis from Mm. 2001, I think a pretty sweet movie 
with a really tender performance from Hopkins. Again, those are our top five Anthony Hopkins performances. You can send us your picks or any other comments about the show by emailing us feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that's our show. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. Filmspotting.net is also the place to vote in round one of Film Spotting Madness, best of the 80s. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at Filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, the U.S. v. Billy Holiday, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, launches an undercover sting operation against the singer directed by Lee Daniels. In limited release, Tom and Jerry, that's in theaters and coming to HBO Max. Cherry, starring Tom Holland as an army medic who returns from combat with PTSD and succumbs to opiate addiction. That's directed by the Russo brothers. You can see it on Apple TV plus on March 12th and my Zoe. This is a family drama directed by and starring Julie Delpy is out along with the father in limited release this weekend and in Chicago on March 12th VOD on March 26th, Anthony Hopkins giving a top three Anthony Hopkins performance according to, to Josh. Also, you can see Night of Kings, the Ivory Coast submission for the best international feature Oscar that is set in a jungle prison where inmates have taken over. And Josh, you've seen the film. Yeah, I wanted to give this uh, a quick recommendation. It is going to be at the Music Box here in Chicago, which is opening uh, to limited capacity, but they're opening again this weekend where you can find Night of the Kings. And it's really good. It's quite something. Uh, Writer-director here, Philippe Lacote. Basically, what's entrancing to me about it is it is set in this prison, but the scenario, there's sort of these... It's sort of become this tribal society that has taken over the prison. The strong man known as Blackbeard, it's he's sick. And so one way he's trying to hold power, distract the other prisoners who are kind of circling about him. There's a little um, the lion in winter to this movie, Adam, is to have a new arrival tell a story throughout the night. The scenario is as long as this guy played by Bakari Kone can keep spinning a yarn, he's allowed to live. Hmm. And so as he's telling this tale that he's making up from his personal history, there's folklore here. There's a little bit about Ivory Coast politics thrown in this, this crowd around him is watching. They start to participate. So after he says something, a few men will join in and start singing. There's a moment where he references a scorpion and like six men, form the shape of a scorpion and start moving around. So it's kind of like dance performance. It's a little bit of a poetry slam. It does have this whole dystopian survivalist nightmare of being set in this prison. Just a really unique, um, pretty harrowing film. Uh, but yeah, I think it's going to be available via virtual cinemas around the country. But if you are in Chicago, it'll be at the Music Box as well. We will link to more information about how to see that film, Night of Kings, at filmspotting.net in the notes for this show. Next week here on Film Spotting, we will talk about Taxi Driver, part of our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series, and the second film in our 40s noir marathon, Veronica Lake and Robert Preston star in 1942's This Gun for Hire. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hallgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. 
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.